0: Our Bible reading this evening comes from the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'll ask you to turn there to John chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 30. This is a section of the gospel that follows a very well-known passage in chapter 3, where Jesus meets this man of the law, of the Jews, called Nicodemus. A very prestigious man, a very important and respected man. And he comes in the middle of the night, and Jesus uh, expands to him a little bit on this idea of the new birth. A metaphor that took a little bit for Nicodemus to understand and as we'll see, the passage to follow here in John chapter 4, in many ways, ways resemble and contrast what we see in chapter 3, where we find this woman of Samaria, not so much respected. Um, she is a woman and she's from Samaria. As we'll see, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other that much. But Jesus, as we'll see, is here to ministry not only to Nicodemus, but also to this woman. So John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. This is God's word. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Let's pray. Lord, your word is our source of light and life. We know that we cannot live apart from your word. More than our bodies need physical bread, our spirits need your word for guidance, for healing, for redemption. And Lord, we come here knowing that we have not found the satisfaction that we have wanted uh, in our lives. So many times we have sought in different places. We have sought the different, the, the wrong gift in the wrong place. And we pray that you guide us here tonight by the gracious will of your Holy Spirit. Um, in a direction where we would see how precious it is that we have a fountain of life in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that um, you would use your word even now as it comes to our minds and, and touches our hearts to renew our minds and to draw us together to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. If you think of the four Gospels, among all of them, and they are different emphasis, none of the Gospels is as explicit in declaring its purpose than the Gospel of John. John writes that, uh, that he writes this Gospel that you may believe that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name and this is exactly what this passage is all about this is another session here if you were to consider nicodemus being the first one this is the second interaction jesus has with someone through the gospel of john where he's presenting himself so that this person would understand two things and this is what you and me have to understand in our own lives as well first what kind of gift is this that god offers and How can we find it? Who is the one giving this gift? John wants us to come to faith in Christ, the God-man, the one who is the source of all life. And the passage, if if you go back to chapter four, uh, John records here that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And John did not mean this as a geographical necessity. Yes, if you were to look in a map, The easiest way to get from A to B here, where Jesus is traveling, is going through Samaria. But as you know, or maybe you don't, but Jews didn't like the Samaritans. Actually, most of the Jewish leaders at this time would choose to cross the Jordan, go all the way through the east, and then cross the Jordan again just to avoid walking and and getting dust on their feet from the, the land of the Samaritans. And the history here goes back 800 years before uh, what we hear here in the Gospel of John. It goes back to uh, when Israel was divided in two different sections, uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Um, Babylon comes and conquers Judah and Benjamin in the south, take them to Babylon. And the capital, of course, with this split of the south was Jerusalem. But the capital of the northern kingdom was become Samaria during this split. And the Assyrians then come and conquer this whole land, including Samaria. And we read in Second Kings that they brought five different pagan nations to live in Samaria at this point. And the Jews, of course, who were living in Samaria, intermarry with these pagan nations, and they accept their gods, and they follow their traditions. And that's the beginning of this animosity between Jews and Samaritans. When captivity is over and the Jews from the south come back, they try to help, as we read in, in Nehemiah, and tr- Ezra and Nehemiah, that they try to help the people from the south to be rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But because of the compromise of the Samaritans, they are rejected, and the Jews have to tell them, no, you, you have compromised with their gods. You're, you're not part following with the words of Yahweh. Uh, you have neglected the Old Testament. We know that the Samaritans denied any revelation after Moses, after the Pentateuch. And with all that, they, it, that's the beginning of the animosity. And later, there's more to it. Uh, years later, the Samaritans will come and, 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 and try to worship Jerusalem And they'll be rejected by that. The the Jews will go and destroy the temple in Mount Garrison. That's the mountain that's referred here by this woman later on. She says, we worship in this mountain. You worship in this other mountain. That's Mount Garrison. That's where the Samaritans build the second temple because they're saying, okay, if they're not going to accept us in Jerusalem, we're going to build our own temple. We're going to follow the Pentateuch and serve our gods here (laughs) in Mount Garrison. But the Jews later on come and destroy that temple. So there's a lot of history there. And the Samaritans then become, to the Jews, the betrayers, the ones who uh, deny God's word, who deny any revelation, and and anything that comes after the Pentateuch, of course, starts referring to Jerusalem more often, and and that's why they don't like that. But that's what we see uh, in this history. So this, this, this is taking place then in Samaria, but Jesus here had to pass through Samaria. Not a geographical necessity, but again, this is the Son of Man, who had to come to this place where God, by his gracious design, had ordained this meeting between the Samaritan woman and Jesus Christ himself. And she would meet the Son of God. It says in verse 5, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Here's where we start to look a little bit at the setting so this is Jacob's well, which, by the way, it's still there today. If you were to uh, visit Israel, you can, you can still find this well. This well had been there for millennia. She's referring back to Jacob who had built this. And it's interesting if I may quote a um, congregation list in a Presbyterian group here tonight. Uh, William J., he uh, has a whole lesson just on this well. It says, I'll just take a break from, from all the other important things that we see here and just look at the well and see how in all these centuries, kings and emperors and all these wealthy men had built all these buildings, castles, um, temples, statues, and all they're all gone. But Jacob, the simple servant of the Lord, by God's blessing, built this well and it's here now for centuries. And I found that amazing, just to think of that, that because God blessed that well, as simple as it was, it wasn't as expensive as the other buildings, but it was there for centuries and it was providing water to all these generations. And this woman, I was looking back to, to honoring Jacob, the one who had built that. But if this, this well is important because it's Jacob's well, uh, built by the forefather, uh, or, or it had provided water for centuries, the most important thing about this well, the reason this well becomes part of eternal history here, Is because it's about to receive the illustrious presence of not Jacob, but the very son of God. God in flesh, on earth, walking and meeting this woman, saving this woman by this well. Um, This well is important to notice that this is a spring well. Uh, The the word here, uh, John makes this very clear, which is not very common. Usually when you think of wells... In the New Testament, there's a different word than the one used here, referring to just a common well. But this was a spring well. And this is a very important detail. Um, For us, we may not think about it, but for the Jew in the first century or the Samaritan, uh, living water was a big thing, and it was part of their vocabulary. Um, From a spring would flow what they would call living water. And this was a term used for fresh or running water, opposed to water which had been sitting on a jar, on a pond, or in a cistern. This is actually why in the New Testament you see so many references to people going down to a river to be baptized or to do some sort of purification. It's not because they didn't have any water at home or because they need enough water to be immersed. It was because they wanted the living water, the water that would take away defilement, the water that was running and living, it would clean the impurity and take it away. So Jews, of course, uh, they, they chose, their first preference was for living water, running water, opposed to water sitting somewhere. And, and this was a big thing about this particular uh, well here. This is a spring well. There is water flowing from a spring in the very bottom of this well. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There is a beauty just to realizing that here we find Jesus weird. Jesus has walked a lot. Of course, he didn't even have a donkey or a horse here, so he's been walking for miles. And he finds himself weird in the Palestinian desert. The God-man, the creator of all springs, the creator of all the oceans, and everything that you see and exist, that Peter says that was created from water, the one who can control the oceans and the storms, he is here. Finds himself in his humanity, though not only a man, but truly a man. He finds himself tired, hungry, thirsty, and he sits by this well and he has to ask this woman for a drink of water. And it was about the sixth hour, of course. The Jews, uh, the, the day for a Jew, it was from the six a.m. to six p.m. That was the daytime. So the sixth hour here is in the middle of the day. We're talking about noon, the hottest time of the day. The sun is scorching hot in this Palestinian desert, and Jesus is very hungry. We know because the disciples went to, to get food, and they're coming back for him later. But uh, even though it's a big problem for our society today, the, the problem called hangriness, we got hungry, we got tired, and we can't think of any, anything else outside ourselves. But Jesus here, he is not thinking of himself. Hungry, tired, thirsty. He is here to dedicate the next few minutes of conversation and engagement with this woman who comes to draw water. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And because of this detail we get from John, that this is the sixth hour, there's something really odd here going on. First, why is this woman coming by herself? Uh, it's about a mile and a half from Sychar, what we believe it used to be Sychar, to this well today. And women, just, they wouldn't just go by her, by themselves in the desert, back in the day especially, uh, without any protection to get water from a well. But not only she's coming by herself, which we know that women would come draw water in groups, but she also comes at noon. If you go back through the Old Testament, you always see these patterns of women coming to the well, either early in the morning or in the end of the day, because that's when the sun is not as hot. But this, the worst time of the day, where the sun is right above your head, this is when this woman comes to get water. John is telling us something here, uh, very important about this Samaritan lady. He is telling us that this woman didn't want to be with anyone else, and It makes sense as you look a little bit more at her description that she had five husbands and the one that she lives now is not her husband. People probably knew that and she probably didn't have a good reputation. This woman seems to be an outcast and if you think of the contrast between the important male Jewish leader who came at night and now this woman who comes in in the middle of the day, it makes sense that she would be an outcast. The opposite of what you had seen with Nicodemus. There are two reasons, basically, why this woman is here by herself. The first one is that everyone else probably avoided this woman. They didn't want to be with her. And she probably avoided the uncomfortable and judgmental company of these other women around her anyway. So, might as well just go in the middle of the day. God here, because of this woman's screw ups, because of her impurity, because of all the things that made her the immoral woman in Samaria. He's using all these things to bring her to a place where she'll meet the Christ. And isn't that the case for all of us? How many times when everything is going well and it's the best season of your life, that you start rationalizing about all the important questions of life and how it is important to live a holy life and honor God? That's not often how that happens. It could happen, but most of the time it's because of our screw-ups because of all the messed up things of our lives, that God take us to a place where we have to wrestle with God. Jacob, the one who built this well, knew this very well, better than anyone else maybe, what it means to wrestle, literally, with God. And he did that because of his screw-ups, seeking the blessing wrong places, and now he finally comes to wrestle with God, and he seeks the blessing of God. Here we see this woman who finally, because of her screw-ups, come to meet the Messiah. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink, By asking a simple question, give me a drink. Jesus is breaking a great barrier between this woman and Jesus. Uh, It would be really hard to think of a way that Jesus could interact with this woman that would actually catch her attention and lead to a full conversation. She was a woman. You don't talk to a woman like that. And, And she was a Samaritan. Jews don't relate to Samaritans. But Jesus asked her a simple question, give me a drink. And as you see, there's a surprising question to this woman. Uh, by the way, she responds. She did not expect, she says, verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, is asking or, or ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you listen carefully, there is a subtle, and yet I believe a real rebuke from the way Jesus is addressing this woman here. He says, it's as if Jesus was saying, I asked you a very simple favor. I asked you something very simple. There's this this well. It has living water at the very bottom of it, the water that's flowing. But at the top, there's this normal water that's sitting. That's the one I asked you, the simple water from the top of the well. You just get your bucket, you get it easy. I asked you a simple question. You were reluctant to attend to my request and to give it to me. But if you had asked me to give you living water, not the sitting, the water that's sitting on top, but prime water, the best water, I would have given it to you immediately, right away. And maybe this outcast woman is even Showing a little bit of pride here, it sounds like there could even be some sarcasm to the way she, she answers. Because she says, maybe she's thinking, finally I have found someone needy enough to depend on me for a favor. Maybe, maybe her answer was, you a Jew asking me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? Poor you, you must be really thirsty to have to ask a woman of Samaria. I know the Jews, they don't even share pots and pans with us because they don't want to drink and fellowship with a woman like me, but you need me that badly. Jesus makes sure that that's not the case. Jesus clarifies his real purpose is engaging her in this dialogue. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that he's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew better who I am, you would have understood that you are the one who is utterly thirsty here. You are the one who need me to do you a favor. Notice that this woman's problem is ignorance, which is our problem. The reason we are not finding satisfaction, if we're not finding satisfaction, is because of ignorance. Um, Ignorance of two things, the two things uh, John is writing this gospel about. She doesn't know the gift She doesn't understand what the gift is. She's still thinking that this living water is the water from the bottom of the well. She doesn't get the metaphor. In the same way that Nicodemus couldn't understand, do I have to go back to my mother's womb? I'm old. She doesn't get it. But she doesn't get the giver either. She doesn't know who he is. She doesn't know who she's talking to. And Jesus' goal in this whole dialogue would be to show her these two things, who he is and the gift that he can give. Uh, Paul writes, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And the, the end here is what makes the difference. Due to their hardness of heart. Our problem, when, when Jesus says that you have to see, you have to understand, uh, that she doesn't know, uh, the, ver- the verb here is a verb that doesn't mean just had knowledge, but he's saying you don't you don't understand who I am leading to a reliance on me, on, on who Christ is. It's, it's true faith that doesn't just acknowledge that something's true or not, but actually lives by that truth. And this is what Jesus is getting, trying to get across here, that she needs to understand who he is and come to him for this great gift. Uh, but as Paul is saying, our ignorance leads us to hardness of heart. What Jesus is doing is engaging this woman's mind and, and even using these somewhat uncomfortable and somewhat confusing metaphors, it could have been more clear. I'm talking about spiritual salvation, but he doesn't do that. He wants to engage her mind to reach her heart. And the Bible else everywhere is, is very clear about this direction where the final goal is not just knowledge in the head. God wants our hearts to be redeemed, but the path, the door to our heart is through the mind. And this is what Jesus do in the mind the same way that we are to engage our minds with the scriptures. We are to pray and meditate on the things of God, and through those things renewing our mind, that's how the Holy Spirit uses the word in our minds to renew our hearts. This is what Jesus is doing here, engaging this woman's mind. Um, but she cannot see beyond superficial appearances. She, she cannot pass the idea that it's the living water from the bottom of this well. Verse 11 the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jewish man, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't even have a bucket and you, have, you don't even know how deep this well is. I live here. Come on. And this is of course what, Je- what Jesus wants. Um, he knows that he'll be misinterpreted. But notice how even though she doesn't get the main idea of what living water really means, spiritual water. She's still, are you greater than Jacob? This man is weird enough or odd enough that there's something about him that I can't quite understand here. Um, Jesus' gift, of course, is to point her, and this is what we we'll see to the rest of this passage, is to point her. To, to the fact that he's talking about spiritual things, spiritual thirst, not just physical thirst. What Jesus is offering here, if you were to take a break and just look at briefly just what this gift is all about, he's offering her a gift. Notice that Jesus is not selling anything. he's is not trading anything. This is a gift. This is something that if you come to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, he gives freely. It comes from him. You have to come to him personally. It doesn't matter what your parents believe. It doesn't matter the church you go to. It doesn't matter if you go to a Christian school. Not that those things are unimportant, but ultimately you have to come to Jesus yourself. You have to come to him and get that living water. No one else will mediate for you in this sense. And But the, the last thing maybe that's interesting about this thing that Jesus is offering, this living water, is that uh, this illustration of a spring And this is where I had to ask for help for my in-law, the engineer, who I would say things. If I'm messing up the whole science behind it, you can go talk to him. But there is a gap between what I heard and what I may present to you. But my understanding, my understanding is that a spring, there's pressure. (laughs) I'm already afraid of this. There's pressure under the ground. And there's types of soils. And if you try to stop a spring, it's something very hard to be done or just live it that way. It's very hard. You can't just put a little rock on top of the spring and expect that the water will be go away. There's a lot more to it. And the water will bubble through and find its way out. And it's hard to find a spring. And this is the illustration that God's using here for eternal life. He's saying the, st- the spirit of God, the word of God abiding, and the, of- the seed of God abiding in you, as it comes to your heart, becomes something unstoppable trials will come difficulties will come all kind of different scenarios and circumstances and this water will stay alive in you you will not move on from this you may have flipped from fountain from to fountain from well to well until now you know sports and it didn't work out and then this and that and then whatever it is the place where you have sought for satisfaction even good things like religion and church and family. But ultimately, ultimately, you have to come to Christ. He is the only one who's satisfied to a point where it will bubble through. It will well up living to abundance in water that will flow all around. I appreciate the Psalm 1 as a as a reading, uh, for a responsive reading. Uh, this water, that if you buy that water, uh, this tree cannot... Uh, will not wither but will flourish verse 15 the woman said to him sir give me this water so that i will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water she still doesn't get it she still doesn't get it she still think okay you have this water so i don't have to come here again it just keeps coming from the bottom of this well. however that works yes give me some of that that way i don't have to walk a mile and a half and come back here Jesus said to her, and this is a very important moment in this passage. This is where I don't want to lo- lose you here. So please, if you haven't paid attention to anything, this is where uh, you should start paying attention. Pay attention to the rest of it. That would be good. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. A lot of people, as they're really like, why is Jesus changing the subject? He's not changing. This is, this is the genius of Christ, the God-man in all his wisdom. She doesn't fully understand what Jesus is saying by this living water. She's still too attached to her physical needs. She can't see through that. But again, Jesus is engaging her mind. He's using this thing that she wants, the living water. And he's using this to point her to her real need. And, and this is what he's doing now. He's saying, go call your husband. Now he's moving to an area of her life where she's actually needed. She has had five husbands. And she lives with a man now who is not her husband. This woman is seeking for satisfaction in these things, and she has not found it. So go call your husband. Now he's trying to make those connections. Okay, this water is not just physical water, it's spiritual water. And this is a very unexpected question to this woman. We may not see it as clearly, but, but just think about this. Today, um, I'm, a, I'm a married man. This is the first sermon I preach that I can actually say this. I'm a married man, and I'm wearing this ring, because I belong to, to someone uh, and this means that I'm married and I wear this and if I go out and if I go to a coffee shop or a, or a place people know I'm married because I'm wearing this well back in the day it was a lot easier to see if someone is married or not because it was not a ring that you could maybe put your hands in the pocket or or, or or not it's not as visible but back in the day married women would wear a veil in their heads they would wear a head covering most likely for a jewish Samaritan. Uh, it was actually a veil and This woman, from the next verse, she says, I don't have a husband, so is she wearing a veil? No, most likely she's not wearing a veil. There's no reason for her to wear a veil if she's not married to anyone. So this is why this question is so unexpected to her. She's not wearing a veil. This man, he's not one of those people in her town who know about who she is. He's just a Jewish man who's traveling through. And he turns to her and says, with confidence, go call your husband and come back. You don't see, I don't have a husband. And that's, you see, even the way she answers, she's been so talkative, so verbose this far. And now in three words in the original language, three words, husband, have I not, have I not, three words. She's very brief in just saying, I don't have a husband. She doesn't explain anything about it. Just, I don't have a husband. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you have now, that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus is revealing to her her real thirst. And this woman now says something that seems maybe a little odd. Uh, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. How do you know this? Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You worship, and and then Jesus will answer now this question. uh, It's hard to tell if this woman is simply changing the topic because she's so uncomfortable by, excuse me, because Jesus is asking this uncomfortable question about her private life, and she's just trying to change the topic, or if actually she realizes that this man is a prophet. There's something special about him, so maybe this is a good time to, to check the box of this great political and theological issue of the day between Jews and Samaritans, who is right—the ones who are here worshiping Mount Gerizim? Well, not anymore; it was destroyed at that point. But where we worship, where our, tem- where our temple should be, or the ones in Jerusalem—who is right? And I'll cut through the answer that Jesus gives here. He does mention to her. He just answered the question. Uh, he does that. He does in twenty, in verse twenty-two. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation belongs. Salvation is from the Jews. So as far as just checking that that box and answering that question, this is very explicit. You were wrong. Jews are right. They are doing, they're worshiping the way God wants to be worshiped. It's not what you want, but it's what he wants. And he has declared in his counsel in the Old Testament scriptures that the place of worship is Jerusalem. That's it. Uh, Paul says in Romans 10, to the Jews were entrusted the oracles of God. But, Notice that Jesus here, that's not really the focus of his answer. He does answer the question, but he starts by saying, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming, and it's now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is a major claim. Jesus is saying, everything you know is about to change. Something monumental is about to take place here. From now on, true worships will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And this is a very misunderstood section as well. Let me tell you what the passage is not saying. What Jesus is not saying is that worship used to be a certain way and now is in spirit and in truth. Meaning, it was not in spirit and in truth, now it's going to be this way. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is that under the old covenant, though God expected true worship from the heart, in spirit and in truth, just like the New Testament, worship was encircled by many physical aspects. Jesus here is announcing that worship is, in many ways, becoming more simple. That's what he's saying. The Reformed worship is simple. We don't need much. We don't need a lot of pictures and movies or anything of that going on. It's simple. Is in spirit and in truth. What Jesus is saying is that many external aspects that this woman is questioning about, is it here or there? Which temple, which place, in what way? All these external aspects are about to be fulfilled by Jesus, and they're going to be taken away but the critical core of worship that has always been there will be left. And he says, the hour is here. This hour is a reference to himself. The hour, the coming of the Son of Man is, has happened. I'm here, and the climax of this hour is, of course, his death at the cross. And it is his death, because it is at his death when he himself is the temple, he himself is the priest, he himself is the sacrifice. All the external aspects of worship in the Old Testament, the visible things, they're all fulfilled in Christ, and he's taking those away because he's fulfilling those things, the old covenant rituals, and His living worship is in its essence, in spirit and truth. Old Testament worship has always been, even the emphasis in the Old Testament has not been necessarily the altar, the offering, the priest, the ceremony, the day, the Sabbath, the calendar. Those things were important as sacraments in the Old Testament, but even the Old Testament, I'll give you two examples. The core worship has always been a contrite heart. Psalm 51, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare you praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. What David is saying here is the same thing um, written by Micah in chapter 6. Micah 6, 8. Will the Lord be pleased? Well, before Micah 6, 7 here. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. At the core of worship, true worship that pleases God, that honors God, is a contrite heart. That's what God wants from you, that's what He's concerned about. And this is true today. I hope you understand that there are physical aspects to our worship. When you come here, you come here and you have a call to worship and you're hearing, there are mechanical waves. Again, not an engineer. You ask Mark about that later. Mechanical waves are going through the air and getting to your ears. And as you sing and there's your voice and there's the light that helps you see the word with your eyes and the Bible and you're reading the verse and you're saying things out loud. So many things are happening. We're physical beings. We can't, we can't get away from that however what god is concerned about is your heart this is what the third commandment is all about if the first commandment is about you worshiping the right god the second commandment is okay now you worship the right god in the right way not like the pagans who make these idols no no there's a way to worship i will tell you how to do it. you do it my way that's how to worship but you can still not be worshiping god by being in the right church worshiping the true god of the bible yahweh saying his name correctly you say the right words, you're here. But if you, don't mean it, if you don't mean it from the heart, that's not true worship. You're taking the name of God in vain. Every time you're singing and your mind is going somewhere else and you don't mean what you say, you're breaking the third commandment. It doesn't come from the heart. True worship from the heart, what God wants from you is that you would come before his presence. When you come to church, you're coming before his throne. This is the living God, creator of the universe, called you to worship him. You're here. And now he wants you to see him as he is in his glory through his son, Jesus Christ, who is your mediator in heaven. And by the help of his Holy Spirit, you come before his throne and you mean what you say. You say, Lord, I praise you. And you mean what you say. You sing the hymn and you mean the words of that hymn. You hear the word of God being preached and you take heed of it. You're actively listening and being engaged by God's word and you're doing everything you can to honor God who is speaking to you in front of you from his word. And that's worship that pleases God. There's nothing more pleasing to God than you hearing His word and taking it seriously and taking it with reverence and treasuring the privilege it is to hear His word and to be His presence. That contrite heart of worship is what God wants from you. The Father is seeking this. God is spirit and those who worship Him must, must worship in spirit and Truth. The Father is seeking those to worship him. Uh, Verse 24, without getting too much into this, um, Jesus explains even a little bit of of the why worship has this spiritual nature. Uh, He says, God Himself, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is invisible, he does not have a body, but we have bodies. We are physical beings. We need our senses to to engage things and to understand the world around us. So apart from physical realities, we cannot know God. That's just the truth. God is a spirit. He's invisible. He's immaterial. So how can we get to know this God to receive the gift of God unless there's some sort of physical reality communicating truth to us? That's the issue here. That's the issue of worship. And that's why before Christ came into the world, to have this communion with God, we needed these physical elements. Uh, Otherwise, He would have remained unknown to us. We could not have met Him, um, so we needed all the revelation in the tabernacle and the sacrifices so that we could understand those spiritual things. But the author of Hebrews says that now, and this could be a a different expression for the hour that Jesus has described. Uh, He says, in these last days, meaning this hour, when Christ was here, these last days, now he has spoken by us, uh, to us by his word, the Son. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is the fa- at the Father's side. The Son has made him known. We don't need the physical things from the Old Testament because Christ has come in flesh. He has accomplished all these things. And now we behold in his face, in the face of Jesus Christ, in his glory, the power of of God, His character. It's by studying His word, even passages just like John 3, John 4, how He interacts with people. We see His compassion, His mercy, His love, His tenderness. And of course, the climax of this is Him at the cross. We understand, we see who God is as we look at Jesus Christ, and we seek the gift that only Him can offer. The Father is seeking those to worship him, The woman said to him, verse 25, as we get uh, closer to the end of our passage, uh, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So she knew about the promise of the Messiah, probably from uh, Deuteronomy 18, where Jesus uh, is referred to, the, the Messiah is referred to as, as the prophet who is to come. Uh, and she's saying, I know the Messiah is coming. He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And our translation misses the point here. It doesn't capture Jesus' reference to the name of God here. When he says, I am he, he's saying, I am the Messiah. Ego, um, or, ami or Yahweh. But most likely, he's, it's a Samaritan woman. He's a Jew. So most likely they speak in Aramaic, not Hebrew, Aramaic. And in either way. He would be referring to the name of God. I am the Messiah. I am God. He, I who speak to you, am he. And he finally clicks in this woman's head. He is not offering me water from the bottom of this well. This man is the Christ. As Peter said, this man is the son of the living God. And the living water that he is offering me is eternal life. He's offering me a satisfaction that I have sought everywhere and I couldn't find it. But now the Messiah is here. The hour has come, all the prophecies that I believe, they're here, they're taking place, and I'm ready to receive. Lord, give me this water. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. As we draw this to a close, the two things we're looking at here is the person of Jesus Christ, what kind of God he is, what kind of worship is expecting of us, but the second thing, the gift. What kind of gift does he give? And we talked a little bit about that before, but... As we get to the end here, I want, to, I want you to see the effects of this gift in this woman's life. Notice first of all that if this woman in the beginning of this passage was an outcast and she was doing everything that she could to avoid people and to be here, probably thinking of all the judgmental thoughts that people have around her, now her priorities are completely changed. This woman before could not see the metaphor it was all about the water at the bottom of the well. Now she leaves her water jar, the text says, and she runs into town. The water that she was so concerned about is not even important to her. She runs to town and she now she has to tell everyone about this living water, this spiritual water. Who cares about the water in my jar? Live that in the desert. I want to tell you that there's a man out there, Christ the Messiah, and he can satisfy the deep needs of your soul. Come see if this man is the Christ. john the same john who wrote this gospel writes in first john chapter 4 that there's no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear that's what's happening in this woman's life she was afraid maybe of the circumstances of what was going on between her and all these other women but now she doesn't care about that anymore she goes into town to all the people and that's what love does it drives us not to be isolated that's what fear and anxiety do but This woman is driven by the love of Christ in the same way that Christ left heaven to come to minister to this woman in Samaria in the middle of the desert. Now she's reflecting her Savior's character as she's being transformed by the living water and she is going to town to those people who maybe were oppressing her, who knows, but she doesn't care. She wants to tell them about the Christ. There's life out there. You should come get it. So... He moves toward others. He establishes new priorities. These are all works of the love of God in this woman's heart. So how can this woman have this gift? How can you receive such a gift? I mean, think of this woman. Let's keep with the illustration we have. This woman has had five husbands, and the one she has now is not her husband. How can a Samaritan woman who has worshipped pagan religion and who has lived an immoral life, how can she receive this living water? And how can you receive this living water? You have sought in the wrong places. The answer, I believe, comes at the end of the Gospel of John. This is John 19, verse 28. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus... Knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. These are the words of Jesus at the cross I thirst. Jesus died of thirst. Jesus died because he had to experience the thirstness that comes from seeking this water in the wrong place, the thirstness of sin, what sin brings to your life, the satisfaction that maybe you have looked somewhere in these wrong promises of life out there. Jesus experienced that in its ultimate level, the thirstness of the wrath of God that you deserved so that you in him could receive his living water. This is how this gift comes to you. It's through his works, it's through his thirst, through his pain that this comes to you. And this is the gift of God, that if you come to him, he gives and he gives it freely. So may our Lord help us to know who he is from his word, to see the loving Savor that we have, who went way beyond what we'd even expect. This woman wasn't expecting this. She just wanted to go home with a jar of water. Just like you and me, we're just doing our thing and seeking for the next fun thing in our lives in front of us, the next adventure, until the love of Christ came into our lives. And a whole new world opened to us. A spiritual world, a spiritual reality of worship, where we can come before the creator of the universe and worship Him, now that we have this living water flowing from the throne of grace. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Let's pray. Dear, dear gracious Father, we come to you again in this special day that we have set apart to focus our minds and the things that belong to you and to your kingdom. We thank you for the privilege of being here tonight. We thank you for the privilege of being born again. We thank you for the privilege of being part of your kingdom. We thank you that you have rescued us from our own designs to our lives. And you have brought us to a place where we can know our savior, Jesus Christ know his gift of life and we can walk with him by the presence of your Holy Spirit you work in our hearts and you bring the satisfaction that no else could offer to us we pray that all of us here tonight would have our eyes open to to see the wonderful things that are available for us in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we pray that you would humble us we pray that you would build in us true contrite hearts that at all times are concerned in living a life before you and before your face, fearing you, loving you, as we were designed to do. And we pray in the name of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.